welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am speaking to Amita Jassy, a consultant clinical psychologist at the National and Specialist OCD, BDD and Related Disorder Service for Children and Young People. Body dysmorphic disorder affects about 1 in 50 people. We discuss why it's such a debilitating condition, why there is a lack of insight into it, and I ask her about what treatment and therapies are available if you or someone you know may be struggling to cope with it. If you haven't already, I would also highly recommend you listen to my conversation with Charlie King as he speaks so eloquently about the condition. Can you just explain to us all about BDD and what it is? Yeah, absolutely. So BDD stands for body dysmorphic disorder, and it's a really common mental health condition that we think around 2% of the population experience. And the way people who have BDD experience it is that they'll be really preoccupied with what they think is a flaw in their appearance. So they perceive it as a flaw that other people might not even notice at all. They might just think it's really slight or just non-existent. And therefore, they engage in lots of behaviours to try and hide or fix that perceived flaw and it's often more than one thing and around up to 70% will go on to seek cosmetic procedures to try and sort of fix that flaw but even if they don't there's still other things they'll be doing on a daily basis like camouflaging with makeup they may avoid going out or seeing people or avoid going on zoom or skype and, and things avoid photographs and all of this so this preoccupation and all of the behaviors to try and sort of hide or fix what they think is a flaw in their appearance causes significant distress and impact so lots of it I work with young people and lots of them are missing school they're not sort of doing things that other people their age would be doing and with adults it really impacts on sort of their work and and social lives as well so a really distressing and impairing condition. What I would like to know is if I'm right in thinking that there's a close link between OCD and BDD yeah and then I'd also love to unpack the relationship between BDD and eating disorders because for me it's quite a fine line between in some instances not in all but I would have thought it can be quite hard to distinguish between an eating disorder and body dysmorphia disorder. Yeah BDD is now seen as kind of more of a condition that's similar to OCD. Um, so in the sort of way we think about diagnoses, they've grouped those two conditions together. And I guess the reason for that is because they think there's lots of overlap in terms of development and so forth of it. And the treatments are quite similar. But actually, when you think about how the conditions present, they're quite similar in that you have thoughts and in OCD, it could be a range of fear thoughts and intrusive thoughts and then you do repetitive behaviors and I guess in BDD it's those thoughts about your appearance that real sort of getting stuck on that and then it means you do things to try and sort of reduce the distress associated with those thoughts about appearance so they feel broadly similar although there are differences but it's really 
helpful and interesting you've brought up the whole thing with eating disorders and BDD because I do think you know there's lots of similarities with those conditions there is that disturbance in somebody's body image or there's the way they see themselves and dissatisfaction with appearance and that real focus on appearance and how important that is and how it's linked to their self-worth I would say are some of the real similarities but I guess where the differences are with BDD the appearance worries can be sort of anything it can literally be any part of appearance so it predominantly it's kind of usually around sort of facial features because there's so many features around the face but it could be genitalia it could be breast it could be skin it could be how much hair you've got on your body it's literally any part of the appearance whereas I guess with eating disorders it's really fixated on kind of shape and weight and I guess the behaviors that we often see in eating disorders are a way to control that and the treatments are a bit different because of that I think with eating disorders it's more about sort of physical health and and of course it's psychological treatments but it is about restoring that I guess with BDD it's a bit different but People can have both and actually because they're so closely related, we often see like in people with BDD around a third will also have an eating disorder in their lifetime. And if we look at it the other way, people with eating disorders, nearly half of them may go on to develop BDD at some point. So yeah, definitely closely related. And it's just, it is a fine line between the two, but I guess the treatments are quite different. And what do you think triggers BDD? Really good question. I, I wish we knew. We don't know the cause of BDD and, and every person I meet has a different story, a different background. We know it, it's cross-cultural. It doesn't discriminate. Rates of BDD are broadly similar across the world. I should say with everything I'm saying, there's not huge amounts of research on BDD, unfortunately, but we're learning more and more. We think there's an interplay between sort of biological factors, those sort of being predisposed to BDD. So, you know things like OCD or anxiety disorders or eating disorders running in families and then sort of environmental factors so there's not huge amounts of research but you know often people have told us there may have been a traumatic experience or they've had bullying or teasing when they were growing up that may have contributed to it but that in itself wouldn't necessarily lead to BDD because lots of people have that and they don't develop it so I suspect there's lots of factors there's not a particular gene there's not a particular experience and we don't really know but there are sort of factors like those I've mentioned that we think might contribute to the development. I mean it's a tricky question but what age do people tend to develop BDD is it something that usually develops during childhood and then you might seek treatment in adulthood or do you see it develop later, or is it completely random? The first one you said, so we think when adults come into services, around two-thirds of them have said they actually developed in adolescence and we're seeing young people the reason we've got our service exactly for that because we think it for a majority of people it will develop around sort of adolescence and there's been some case studies of really young children but I would say sort of the kids that we see or young people we see they're under 18 and it's the time isn't it where your body's changing you're probably feeling more self-conscious there's kind of all those vulnerability factors the hormones there's lots going on so we think if you've got the predisposition there might have been those environmental factors adolescence is kind of like a prime time really for these things really to come to a fore and that's quite similar across lots of conditions like OCD and eating disorders as well so I would say for the majority it probably develops around adolescence but then as you've said and as research says you know people might not get to services or treatment till they're adults 
I know lots of adolescents say to us, well, people just say it's normal to worry about your appearance. You're an adolescent or they may think it's something else like an eating disorder, for example, or social anxiety or depression. So BDD often gets missed or misdiagnosed, unfortunately. And I think what one needs to emphasise is that it is like OCD. You know, everyone can have the obsessive thoughts or obsessive yeah. thoughts about their appearance but from what I'm gathering when you have BDD it impinges on your life in a significant way and it gets to the point probably where you can't function in a normal way yeah completely I think you're spot on there that of course we all have thoughts about our appearance and we do look at our appearance it makes up part of our self-esteem and, and how we think about ourselves you know but this preoccupation really takes over where the self-worth is fixated on appearance and that we're more than our appearance. And we talk a lot about that in treatment. But if anybody's listening and they wonder if they've got BDD, you know, comparing yourself to people your age and if you're feeling like the preoccupation or the things you're doing to try and hide or fix these flaws you think you have is taking up time and it's causing distress compared to other people your age, then that's probably a bit of an indication that maybe it may be BDD. It may not, but it's the impact it has. And I'd love you to talk about what the most common behaviours are to allay the BDD to sort of make it better. Is it cosmetic procedures? Is it wearing makeup? I mean, do people hide, develop agoraphobia because they don't want to be seen? All of the above. You know, I think it can be any range of things that people are doing to sort of hide their appearance. It could be the clothes they wear, it could be the makeup, it could be the way they do their hair. Often people might do their hair, like if there's something on their face or they think their nose is big, for example, they might do like really big hair to distract or sort of do makeup in a certain way, like contouring. It can be all of that. And like you said, it can also lead to that extreme avoidance because some people we work with just can't bear to be seen by others. So actually, it's just easier instead of trying to sort of hide or fix it with cosmetic procedures or makeup and things just to hide away. So quite a lot of the people we work with are housebound because it's just so distressing. They feel they're so ugly and grotesque and so forth that they just don't want to be seen by others. So it's incredibly sad. Lots of people, particularly young people, when they can't access cosmetic procedures, might try things themselves, which Mm. is quite worrying. But yeah, it can literally be anything. I think anything that's driving this need to hide or fix this flaw in their appearance or this defect that people think they've got is likely to be a behaviour to do with BDD. And do people with BDD tend to be introverted or do you see a variety? Can someone with BDD actually be a sort of a life and soul of the party and kind of be confident and yet side crippled by anxiety and this preoccupation with their appearance? It's a really, really good point. I think the people we see are quite unwell and I would say more they're hiding away or Another thing we see quite a lot with BDD is people might be drinking a lot more, using recreational drugs and things just to help them in those situations or to reduce the distress. So you might see a persona with the help of drugs and alcohol, for example, to get them through those situations. But inside it's really distressing. But I would say the majority are probably not trying to draw attention to themselves because they don't want to be seen. But, you know, it's a real mix because social media is really interesting in how people with BDD use social media. Some people I work with are really, like, inactive. They don't have an account. They just wouldn't ever post pictures of themselves. Whereas others might really be putting pictures out there to get reassurance about their appearance or to get positive comments So it's a real mix. I think generally temperamentally, people are probably a bit more sensitive and shy end of the spectrum, but how they may present 
if it's driven by obesity, it could look different. And do you see equal numbers of men and women? Or do you tend to see more mm-hmm. women? Because I increasingly actually hear of men saying that they have BDD. And I think with this cult of exercise in gyms, if one thing that fascinates me is that it's sort of been acceptable for so long for men to be incredibly henched and to sort of work out and pump weights. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you see a skeletal woman in the gym, it's like, oh my God, alarm bell, she's anorexic. Exactly. And we think BGD is about even, like in adults. So we think sort of equal number of men and women have BGD. But in adolescence, there's some new data coming out that maybe we might see more girls with BGD than boys. So what that means is maybe girls just develop it earlier or they're getting picked up earlier. But by the time you get to adulthood, it's kind of even. But you've mentioned there about men being hench and kind of built. And what I haven't mentioned so far is there's a subtype of BGD, which is muscle dysmorphia, which is where people people really think they're not muscular enough or they're sort of puny or you know they just think they're really skinny but actually look at them and they are quite hench and and muscular but again it's that perception so it's a bit like anorexia you know thinking they're too big and that people want to be skinnier it's like the other way around in that group it's mainly men we see not to say women don't have it but actually that's where the balance tips the other way that we see more men with that particular subtype but overall it can affect men and women equally particularly by the time they get to adulthood. So what do you do to treat BDD? So despite all of that, you know, and it's a really distressing condition, we've got good treatments, which is the positive news and all this. I guess the challenges are supporting people to see that maybe this is psychological and not to do with physical appearance and then accessing treatments because the treatments that we have available are psychological. Well, one of the treatments is so cognitive behaviour therapy that's the psychological treatment that we recommend for BDD and there's particular ways of doing that treatment that are helpful. So supporting people really to do exposure, so reducing their repetitive behaviours step by step and facing those anxieties that they have. And there's other things that they do in CBT. And often what's helpful to add to that is medication. So the groups of medications that we think work quite well for BDD are antidepressants, but quite high doses of that. But actually, it's the combination that's best. So in our clinic, we offer both. We do the psychological treatment and medication. Our recent outcomes are that around nearly 80% respond to treatment so that they actually can find that their distress and the interference reduces to a significant degree. So that's really good news. But it is that challenge. We think there's lots of barriers to people getting to mental health services. And the biggest thing, I think, is they're going elsewhere they're getting the cosmetic procedures. They're trying to fix their appearance because that's what they see as the problem. Well, essentially, I see that as the compulsion, right? And and in order to get yeah. well, you've almost got to block the compulsion. It's like with exposure, I'm sure, involved in the CBT as some exposure response prevention work. Yeah, exactly. Do you use... I've sort of read a bit about treatment for BDD and and often it sort of involves going out wearing a fat suit, for example, and, and being okay with the way that people look at you and judge you or looking in mirrors, you know, those sort of quirky mirrors that distort your appearance or wearing makeup on one eye and not the other to try and sit with the discomfort and ride that mm. wave of anxiety. Is that something that you do at your clinic? Yeah, I mean, they're really interesting ideas. I guess the principle around that is about doing something uncomfortable and tolerating that. I guess what I might do more of is because there's so many repetitive behaviours, so doing makeup in a particular way, doing hair in a particular way, hiding, 
avoiding, what we would be doing is exactly what you said, is exposure therapy of sort of maybe trying to reduce the makeup step by step and then going out and, and tolerating that. But you've also mentioned maybe looking for other people's responses because often people with BDD will have not everyone, but they might have these predictions that if I don't cover up this horrible part of my appearance, then people are going to point and laugh or judge. So it would be part of that. So one is like tolerating not doing those behaviours, but you may also then be looking out for testing those predictions that you may have that everyone's going to stare at me or think I'm ugly and so forth. So definitely sort of what you mentioned, but maybe more around reducing those behaviours that are already in place and seeing what happens if they can sort of try and drop that and see what happens to their distress and what they think is going to happen, really. Typically, how long would a period of treatment involve in your clinic? Yeah, so we have a particular sort of protocol of 20 sessions. So it's not all clinics will offer that, but we're a specialist service, so we offer 20 weekly sessions, sometimes a bit more. So if somebody's got autism with BDD then we'll offer extended treatments and we you know are adaptable and then we usually follow up for a year so we do those 20 weekly sessions and then keep an eye on people for that year following because we know that's quite a vulnerable time you know when you've recovered there may be setbacks or stresses and it, it may be sort of prime time for things like relapsing so we want to keep in touch with people and not just discharge them at that point and that if there are any setbacks that we're on it really quickly with them and that we can support them to regroup and, and use the tools that they've learned in treatment as soon as they can so they don't fully relapse. And if someone's treating BDD on an outpatient basis how many sessions would you have thought would be a good chunk or does it completely vary depending on the individual? I would say from our experience around 20 because I just think it takes a lot longer to sort of not challenge BDD but you know when I compare to OCD for example our standard treatment is 14 sessions and what we're learning with BDD is it just takes a bit longer because often people with BDD will have really what we call poor insight they won't see it psychological so you do some work around motivation and, and supporting them to maybe look at an alternative way of looking at what the difficulties are that just takes a bit more time but yeah I would advocate for sort of around that number of sessions to really have an impact. You've alluded to maybe people using other substances drugs alcohol to try and almost numb the pain do you mm. see most patients with BDD developing another mental illness alongside it and they might not be aware of the BDD that might be the underlying issue or it might be the other way around what's your opinion on that? Really really good point I think this is another reason why maybe people with BDD don't get the right diagnosis because other things may get in the way and actually they may be a symptom of BDD so we know around 70% will have something else it won't generally I would say it's very rare for me to see somebody with just BDD and I would say the biggest thing I see with BDD is depression and low mood which kind of makes sense because of course if you're feeling that rubbish about yourself and you think you're ugly and you think there's flaws of course that's going to get you down and often because people with depression can feel low about themselves sometimes it's misdiagnosed it's like well that's just because they're feeling really low might see OCD alongside that or other anxiety disorders and we've talked about eating disorders so they're the things that are often misdiagnosed and can get in the way of the right diagnosis but I would say depression is probably the biggest one where people will present with that and unfortunately what will bring them to mental health services is risk and low mood and there's really high rates of 
attempts on life or completed suicides compared to other conditions. Mm. And often it's risk and self-harm and so forth or substance misuse that will get them to the attention of mental health services, unfortunately. So those are things that will bring them to attention. But then whether people ask the right questions and think could BDD be partly to explain for this that's another issue altogether which is why podcasts like this are, are fantastic because it's getting people thinking about bdd as a potential reason for why people feel the way they feel if someone suspects they've got bdd what would you advise them to do so ideally you'd go to your gp and say look i think i've got bdd and hope that they would then refer you on but as a first step, I would recommend, so the BDD Foundation is the only charity for BDD that we have and I'm part of it. And there's so many resources. So there's a self-test on there. So you could do a questionnaire to see whether BDD might account for some of what's going on. If it is, as we've described, that you're preoccupied and you're doing lots of behaviours and you're distressed and, and it's causing interference, it probably is BDD. But there's lots of resources and there's also a GP card and, and things that you can print off and take to your GP. So definitely. I would recommend having a look at that website and the support groups and so forth on there. But the reason I mentioned the GP a few times is that's your gateway to access mental health support. And there is really good treatments there. And part of our role at the foundation, but also my role in my clinical role is we're really trying to roll out people's understanding of BDD with training up clinicians. So in IAPT, for example, which is increasing access to psychological therapies initiative, which is trying to do really timely treatment. We're training people up on BDD. It's been put on the agenda that this is really important. And we're trying to do it for young people as well. Then it may make treatment more accessible. But I would say probably more often than not, it'll be people around the person who's got BDD that might notice it more. So if you've listened and you think your loved one might have BDD then again I would recommend the same thing of get in contact with the BDD Foundation and we can support you through that journey. Yeah we'll put links to the BDD Foundation website in the show notes obviously and it's incredible what you're doing with it. One question I would just like to ask is um, if you do suspect as you said that you've got a friend or family member who's suffering from BDD and maybe you can't afford access to mental health services and you can't get into a GP as soon as you might like what would you advise family members to do or friends to do what's the most helpful thing to do for someone with BDD I guess the biggest thing I, I'd say to families of course treatment's the ultimate support that people need because it's hard without that but I think one thing I do talk to families quite a lot about is not to get into conversations about whether they should be worried about their appearance or not or like, I can't see what's wrong with you or no there's nothing wrong with your nose try and avoid getting into those conversations even though you, you may feel you get pulled into it because I think that's quite distressing in itself because the person who's got BDD will really see what they see but I would say the focus should be more on the distress and impact so maybe talking to your loved one about that you understand they're worried about their appearance but it's just the impact it's having and I think the biggest thing a family member friend could do is just to support that person to access the right support I think that's the biggest challenge even that even allowing that space for somebody to talk about what they're feeling and thinking and just knowing you're there is a lot for a BDD sufferer because that support is really important and is needed through treatment too. And as you alluded to also, you know, it's one of the mental health issues that does lead to a, a large number of people either taking their own lives or attempting to take their own lives. And so it is essential. Exactly. So you've been absolutely fantastic. You're just a sort of <laughs> fountain of knowledge. A huge thank you for all the work you do and continue to do. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. Thank you.